All right. Well, let's do it. So welcome to Something to Do, a podcast devoted exclusively to discussion and devotion of two of our favorite bands, Husker Du and The Replacements. Each week, we'll be nerding out about all aspects of two of the most influential bands in the pantheon of American rock acts. I'm Jude, and this is my co-host, Greg. How's it going, Jude? Good. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. I'm, I'm excited for uh, this week's episode. Yeah, me too. So this week, we'll be discussing the Replacements Stink EP, released on Twin Tone Records in 1982. So first, some quick bookkeeping. As always, thanks so much to everybody who's been listening, following along, engaging on our social media accounts. As a friendly reminder, we're now on iTunes and other streaming services. And by this point, hopefully by the time you're listening to it, we should be on Spotify as well. If you'd like to, please feel free to give us a rating. Other things, so we've been receiving some really nice messages um, just from folks who've been listening to the podcast. We got a, a really awesome and thoughtful email from Rob in Melbourne, Australia. So thanks so much for reaching out and for listening. Um, so Rob shared us links, some links of some awesome Australian bands covering Husker Du and The Replacements. So we do this podcast purely for fun and out of love of the game. Um, as you know, we've talked about in a number of different episodes where just two really old friends um, who love both bands. And this is just an opportunity for us to talk about things, things that we love. So we love both bands and we love each other. It's true. Exactly. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I want to go to uh, Rob. I want to go to Australia very bad. Um, no one in my family wants to go because they're afraid of all the big spiders and whatnot. So maybe he can, if he's listening, he can email and tell them that uh, that's, that's all blown out of proportion. And there's nothing to worry about. Cause I've always really wanted to go there. I remember when we played in the band, I was like, see other bands we played with that got to go to Australia. And I was like, Oh yeah. man, I want to go there. But yeah, thanks so much for reaching out. And like we said, we, we literally are just doing this for fun. This is our golf. Yeah. You know, as old men, right? Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I say we, we hit the links maybe and get started. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, so uh, onto the Matt's EP. So some general thoughts. So why are we doing this record? Uh, this one in particular. So um, Craig, what's your background with this record? So this is one where, you know, like I talked about in a previous episode with replacements, I just kind of got all their stuff, not immediately at once, but pretty like it wasn't like one came out and I lived with it for a year and then another one but um the reason I wanted to do this one is because you know coming from hardcore this is the closest to hardcore that we get from the replacements yeah but it's still and and the band I think kind of disowned this record to a degree which we'll talk about a little later but it still sounds like them like it's yeah. still clearly you know paul tommy chris and bob playing these songs and i think that's what's awesome it's 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 a hardcore record for the most part but it's still a replacements record yeah i know that in other episodes we've kind of talked about how like when we first discovered a particular record and like how it just like moved us in a particular way this one um kind of just floated into my transom as I was getting into the replacements. Like I don't have a distinct memory of like opening it, putting it on, but it's awesome. I actually reach for it a little bit less um, because of some of the reasons that you just noted. Cause it's, I think their most hardcore album just front to back, or I guess as close as they get to it, it's more kind of traditional hardcore. Um, and a big part of why I personally got into the replacements was ways that they were sort of pushing genre, genre boundaries and sort of, 
you know, I, I got into it at a time, I got into the replacements at a time when I was sort of um, moving beyond kind of traditional hardcore. So I think for that reason, I reach for this one less, but every time I put it on, it's just like finding money in the couch cushions. I'm just like, oh yeah, this is awesome. I forgot this is right here all the time. Yeah, and it, it, it has one of my favorite replacement songs same. on it. Yeah. Um, which I'm curious if we have the same one. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> so so little background, um, you know, leading up to it, like we always like to discuss. Um, Sorry, Ma, forgot to take out the trash, comes out on Twin Tone in September of 81. So the band's, you know, gaining some notoriety. Uh, you know, the album is, you know, a, a hit in, in the punk circles that it would, you know, be, be marketed towards. Um, you know, it wasn't like they were being played on, you know, normal FM radio or anything like that. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a hit. It got good reviews. Um, so then, you know, they want to open for Johnny Thunders at First Avenue. Um, they were really excited because, you know, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers, huge influence on the band, especially Paul. And um, they didn't get the gig. Uh, they get the Husker Du got it. And um, there's some funny stories around that that we won't share on this episode, but um, you know, there'll definitely be a time where we have to share that. Um, so at the time of this, the replacements didn't even know who Husker Du were. <laughs> so they're like, who's this band Husker Du? So, and I think that kind of speaks to where the, that band was at within a scene where they were, they're like, yeah, they're in the, the Minneapolis scene, but they're not, they don't have their finger on the pulse at all. Like they really just care about themselves and are just kind of aloof to everything else, but they find out. And then this actually starts the friendly, you know, they were sort of like frenemies with the Hooskers where there was these days. Yeah. Right. The parlance of our times. (laughs) (laughs) So there was, there was a, a bit of a rivalry there where, you know, if, they sold this many records and the other band had to sell this many. And if they played a venue with this cap, they had to play a venue with an even higher, you know, capacity, stuff like that. But they did. um, There was even an instance of a collaboration between Paul and, and Bob, Bob Mould, um, that most people haven't heard. It was actually stolen from Husker Du's van. And Bob basically said, you're not missing anything. It wasn't that great. It's not like you're going to find some hidden treasure on there. So, um, you know, at, at this point, once the replacements realize who who screwed you are, they realize, oh, they're more established than we are. Um, you know, even though the replacements kind of got the one up on them from signing to Twin Tone, which was what the Hooskers originally wanted, um, you know, because of touring and all, Husker Du was much more established. They'd done some national tours and they'd, uh, had some records, and I guess at this point they hadn't signed with SST, but you know they had some notoriety. And Husker Du, true to how they operated as a band, they took the replacements under their wing. That was, you know, kind of how the the scene worked back then, and even still to this day, is that bands would try to help other bands, especially from the area. So Husker Du did that. Um, they were the ones that got them their first uh, out of town shows. And they were a big reason that inspired replacements to actually play faster, to play that more hardcore sound, which really is only heard on, there's some flashes of it on Sorry Ma, but that's a little more of like a punk, you know, bar, bar rock record. 
Yeah. Um, and then stink is the only time where they really approach that intensity. Yeah. And um, Chris Mars actually says in um, Our Band Could Be Your Life, it's a quote from uh, drummer Chris Mars, we were confused about what we were. There was the hardcore scene that was bubbling up. We knew Bob Mould. Did we fit in there? We weren't quite sure. There was some uncertainty. And then Bob even says, they were never a part of the punk thing. They were like a fast bar band to me. They were original songs and stuff, but it was a different thing. And that's like what we, Jude, we talked about even in the first episode of, yeah, they get compared, but they're pretty different. Um, yeah. You know, and this is a huge kind of showcase of when they tried to be something that they weren't. And some people would say they didn't succeed. And I think while Stink succeeds, I think that I'm glad that they didn't just keep putting out like this record over and over again. Like I'm glad yeah. they became what they became. So Husker's take the replacements to open for them in January 82 at a club in Chicago called O'Banion's. So at this show, they debuted the song Kids Don't Follow. So the replacements manager, Peter Jesperson, thought it sounded like a hit, Kids Don't Follow. So he said to his partners at the label that he'd do anything to get the band, uh, to get the song recorded and released. So he said he would even hand stamp the covers. Um, and they took him up on it. And he and his friends stamped 10,000 copies of the record. So they recorded and mixed the eight songs within a week. It was produced by Steve Fjellstad and Peter Jesperson. Steve Fjellstad, who did some work producing uh, Husker Du. Um, yeah, he was like he was like the big engineer, I guess, at the time in yeah. Minneapolis. So um, they record and mix the EP, um, the eight songs on it, within one week. Um, it was produced by Steve Fjellstad, who engineered also some Husker stuff, uh, and Peter Jesperson. The working title of it, of the record that ended up becoming stink was too poor to tour. It's a classic replacement. Yeah, title. Um, and they were a little upset when sorry, ma came out that like everybody kind of knew that it was being recorded and they knew the songs before it even came out. So they wanted to keep things under wraps. So nobody outside of their close inner circle knew that they were recording. Um, so they go, they book themselves in at, I believe it was Blackberry way, um, under the name, the amps and, um, it worked. Nobody knew like it was yeah. a surprise release. So, um, record comes out in June of 82. So you figure that's not even a year after sorry, ma, um, comes out on twin tone as the replacement stink. Um, and then it's actually subtitled kids don't follow plus seven. Um, and the band gets a lot of good press from this. One thing I wanted to touch on is, um, like you mentioned that Jesperson talked about the stamps. Yeah. So they were hand stamping the cover. And I believe in, it might've been the documentary, Color Me Obsessed. They used a potato stamp. Like they cut a oh, potato wow. in half <laughs> and drew it out and then, um, you know, put ink. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, and I love potatoes. So yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> so kind of like a like a Ouija Meccano kind of kind of approach to it. Yeah, it seems kind of like a waste of potatoes too, though. Like I know. I'd rather, <laughs> I'd rather eat them. Yeah. Um, but that's maybe why every time I listen to Stink, like I have to have some French fries. <laughs> At least some tater tots. Yeah. <laughs> 
or if I'm on the go, potato chips. So, um, you know, like I said, they get some good press. So um, Marty Keller from Sweet Potato, which was, a, I think, a magazine or a fanzine, he describes Stink as Paul's best work to date. And it may rank with some of the best songs to come out of the land of 10,000 guitars. And he actually said that Kids Don't Follow is Paul's My Generation. So there's another Who comparison. Yeah, somebody, somebody is just telling me I need to start listening to the Who. <laughs> so Bob Mould said, I think the sound and fury of the band was at its most focused on stink. Kids Don't Follow was true anthem. I could see Bob saying that about this. Like, when I read that, it actually <laughs> it kind of bummed me out because I watched an interview with Tommy Stinson and someone asked him, this was like a couple years ago, and someone asked about Husker Du, and he's like, I never liked Husker Du. Like, I was more into Black Flag. Like, that wasn't my thing, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But then the mixtape that I shared on our socials right. um, had a Husker Du song on it. So I don't know if he was just trying to, like, cool guy it or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I was just kind of like, come on. Like, Bob's sitting here saying, like, it's a great song. Like, he's, right. like, willing to acknowledge it's a good song. Um, but then I think Tommy didn't make the mixtape. Like I think Stint, Bob Stinson did. So yeah. I don't know. But yeah, I saw that and I was just like, oh man, come on, be nice. Yeah. I know. Definitely. <laughs> There's enough negativity. <laughs> There's enough negativity in this world. Like yeah. just be nice. They helped I'm, you out in the beginning. I know. I missed opportunity to reciprocate some goodwill there. Um, so, no disrespect to Tommy. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he's just putting on, you know. So Robert Christgau of The Village Voice um, gave it an A plus and said it was better than the debut LP. So it ranked number eight in his year-end Paz and Jop ballot. Which is kind of nuts because I do like it, but it's not better than the first record. No, it's not. And like, he's like a big time critic, like his stuff. Right. I mean, you see in any kind of book about or writing about the you know punk post-punk art like he was like the guy you right. know but it is a good record but it's no sorry ma so um you know looking back though like we talked about in the end the band wasn't really satisfied with it um they just said you know they thought it wasn't really a true representation of who they were and they admitted that they were just kind of trying to stay in sync with the rest of the scene around them you know the husker Doos, black flags um, the effigies, all, all that, all that stuff, the, the, you know, fast punk, hardcore material. So yeah. that's probably why among other reasons that this is the only record of theirs that sounds like this. Yeah. It does really, um, really stands out, but it's a good record. And I say we get talking about the song. So yeah, you want to start us off. Yes. Yeah, so track one, kids don't follow. It's such a great first song. Um, it's such an awesome, like, loser, rebel anthem. Um, you'd said earlier, Greg, about how in Sweet Potato Zine, it was referred to as their My Generation, and I totally get that connection. I always thought of this song as, like, thematically similar to Wiper's Youth of America, which was from 81, so a year early, or before Stink. Um, also, the chorus kind of uh, functions as an unintentionally great parenting anthem, too. <laughs> Yeah, I remember, I actually have clear memories of playing that song and my kids being in the background misbehaving and being like, oh, he's right, kids don't yeah. follow. No. Um, is that your cat? Yeah, sorry, I'm trying to work the mute. Let me get her out of here. <laughs> That's okay. That's funny. 
<laughs> I was like wondering if it was my cat. I was like, why am I hearing her in the headphones? Sorry. No, it adds a little character. I mean, you know, for a little bit. It's funny. Yes. I know like even when I listen to Wisdom of the Sages, like Capo's been like, you got to get this dog. He's like talking to his daughter. He's like, you got to get this dog out of here. It's nails are just like pounding into the ground. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, the thing you mentioned too about the uh, unintentional parenting anthem, I have clear memories of having that song on and like in the car or something and one of my kids fussing in the back and being like, the back seat and being like, yeah, kids really don't follow. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the, one of the cool things that adds, I think, uh, adds to the feel of the record is that intro banter yeah. um, that was recorded by the late Terry Katzman. Um, and it's actual, an actual soundbite of the Minneapolis police breaking up a party. They used to have these um, things called rent parties. Have you ever heard of those, Jude? No. Um, so basically, someone would throw a party and there'd be like a cover charge and bands would play and it would help them pay their rent. Yeah. So I guess it was like a pre-GoFundMe right. thing. You know, like people pay cash. So they had this party. Now the replacements, um, I think the replacements played it. Uh, they had already played. So it didn't, it didn't stop the show. It happened after the show. But um, legend has it. Everybody seems to point towards the, you know, if you listen close, you can hear someone saying, Hey, fuck you, man. And everybody says that that's Dave Perner from soul asylum. Um, who at the time were called loud, fast rules. Yeah. But I feel like even I saw maybe an interview with Terry Cass and he's like, I have no idea who it was. It's like, it's such a great rumor. It's like almost uncorroboratable, right? Like how could you even prove that? It kind of sounds like him. Yeah. Like from what I've heard, you know, I'd like to believe it's him. Yeah. So uh, you know what? We're going to stamp it. It's him. Yeah. Sounds good. Facts. (laughs) Someone can cite this on Wikipedia. (laughs) Fact. Dave Perner says, hey, fuck you, man. <laughs> on stink. Um, so Paul wrote this actually as a, as a response to U2, um, who are another one of my favorite bands. Um, but they have, you know, their first big hit was on their first record, Boy, uh, I Will Follow. And Paul was kind of like, you'll follow? Well, you know what? Fuck that. We're punks. We're not going to follow. Kids don't follow. So I always thought that was kind of cool. Um, and I love both songs. Also, this is the only hardcore song I think uh, in history that name checks NRBQ. I, who <laughs> I have never heard. Um, I think NRBQ stands for like New Rhythm and Blues Quartet. Yeah. Um, yeah. Any listeners who are NRBQ fans, give us some stuff to check out. Which is crazy because like REM, I know I've heard them talk about them, replacements, never knowingly heard them. Yeah, they say, uh, they mention NRBQ in it. So it's still replacements. Like Black Flags, well, Black Flag did name check like TV shows. So maybe they yeah, would check NRBQ. <laughs> so, um, all right. So up next is Fuck School. What a um, long title. I mean, they were really yeah. like... Yeah. The fact that they were doing a hardcore record. I, I, lo- it is, it's like so heavy handed, Yeah. but I love this song. Yeah. And I love that. Um, 
another legend that I'm I'm gonna say we're gonna promote as fact. Um, in Color Me Obsessed, I think someone talks about in at least in Minneapolis, there was um a story that Tommy Stinson, you know, at this point he's like fifteen and he's done with he's you know, he doesn't want to go to school anymore. He wants to play in the band and tour. And um he walks into the office of like the principal and he puts the tape in the tape deck and hits play on the boom box, plays fuck school and just walks out. And that's how he dropped out of school. And um, to me, that's a hundred percent fact. Yeah. Yeah. The song always like kind of made me think it's like a proto school, like from bleach kind of, kind of vibe to it. Also relevant that Paul himself never finished school. So this is a quote from, uh, Bob Mayer's Trouble Boys. Um, so Paul said, quote, I was supposed to graduate high school in 77. The spring of that year, punk made me think, fuck this school shit, fuck everything. Though he was only a couple months away from a diploma, Westerberg stopped going to class. The elders at Holy Angels, the school that he went to, gave him opportunities to get his degree. And he said, but by then I'd already made up my mind. It was also the rebellion factor. Fuck them, I'm gonna stop before before the finish line and not cross it. So like months away from it. And it sounds like his teachers were like really trying to be supportive of it. And he was just like, Nope, not going to do that. I think I honestly think if I recall correctly from my years of beefing up on Nirvana minutia, I think Kurt Cobain did a similar thing. Like he literally dropped out in like May of his senior year. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, it worked out. It's debatable, I guess. Right. But it worked. It worked out for him at the time, at least right. you know, in the beginning. Yeah. So next we have stuck in the middle. Craig, what are your thoughts on this one? So this song, uh, it's another you know fast little punk number, um, and this really sums up what I would imagine it feels like living in the Midwest yeah. in 1982 as a punk rock kid. You got the scene. I mean. First off, geographically, you got the East Coast has the beaches, the West Coast has the beaches, um, the Midwest. You have these brutal winters, and you have, you know, you don't have beaches. Maybe you go to a lake or something. Um, even punk, you know, you had all the East Coast stuff: the Boston, DC, and um, New York, and then the West Coast. You had all the California stuff. So I always thought that this song really nailed what I would imagine it felt like to be you know, a teenage kid in the early 80s living in Minnesota. Yeah. I mean, being raised in like what is referred to as a flyover state has probably either got to make you nuts or turn you into a Paul Westerberg or a Bob Mayer. I feel like it was maybe an Our Band Could Be Your Life. I forget where I read this. I know in an earlier episode when we were talking about um, Who's Could Do, we were like, gosh, they were like so prolific, like in such a short amount of time, they released like so many amazing albums. And I think Bob was on record as saying like, in the Midwest, that's just what you, like you just, all that, he wrote all of those songs because he just like, he's, you're frozen all winter long and can't leave your house. Yeah. So maybe, maybe hopefully during this time now with quarantine, we get some good, uh, we get some good music. Yeah. Um, you know, because people have nothing else to do. But yeah, I, I remember that too. He basically said it's snowing for six months out of the year. So we just sit inside and write songs. Yeah. 
So next we have goddamn job. So this one's fun too. Cause again, it's the op. So punk, you know, and talking about Westerberg dropping out of school, Tommy yeah. dropping out of school, but this is saying, I need a goddamn job. Right. <laughs> so it's like the total, like the total opposite of what you'd expect. Not like, you know, not take this job. It's yeah. It's basically the antithesis of take this job and shove it. It's right. Saying, yeah. I, I need a goddamn job. I know. It's yeah. Two songs ago, they're like fuck institutions. And this time, this time they're like, we need, like, I, I sort of kind of need them. You, I wonder if he ever, Paul ever used this on like a resume. At that time. <laughs> you know, he wanted to work at like, I don't Burger King. <laughs> for some reason, I can picture him like working at the drive through a Burger King for a day. Um, and he, he used this to get the job. <laughs> yeah. It's like the opposite scenario of Tommy quitting school by playing fuck school. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a fun song. And then speaking of fun songs, um, white and lazy is next. This song cracks me up. Yeah, because uh, it has the beginning with like the harmonica yeah. and then all of a sudden it just goes into this like you know blazing fast hardcore song with gang vocals of white lazy ashamed of nothing <laughs> like i don't even know <laughs> like it's maybe a bit sketchy i don't know yeah <laughs> i i always okay so i always took this song as uh as a tongue-in-cheek commentary, like a point of view, like ironic statement on me too. Um, right, exactly. Sort of like white privilege, essentially. Um, I don't think right. you know that the term had as much currency at the time, but I always sort of took it as a commentary on that. Yeah, like it actually kind of is sort of relevant with everything that's going on if you really think about it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it was sort of like maybe. And had I heard this when I was. 13 i probably wouldn't have gotten that i'm like this is kind of weird like when i first heard white minority by black flag yeah i was like oh this doesn't sound right and then you don't realize like, not only is it tongue-in-cheek but right you have a hispanic person singing right. it like ron ray's yeah but um yeah it's like but um this one is also <laughs> someone was i think oh tommy tommy said this is as political as paul ever got <laughs> this song <laughs> And and that's the true thing with the like Hooskers had their you know their dabbles with politics replacements really didn't they were much more on a personal level yeah through the entire time they were banned even if it was a song like you know customer or uh, something like that it had a real personal meaning and but it does show too that Paul's roots were actually in blues rock before punk yeah so he even though this is like a hardcore song for the second half, he kind of had the chance to stretch those, uh, you know, pay homage to those roots. Yeah. Greg, do you know anything about the gang vocals at the end of the song? Like the backstory of them? It's just, that's like one element of the song that always stuck out to me as something from the replacements catalog. Like who's doing them or? Yeah. Or just like, yeah. Like anything at all. Like, no. And I, one of the things with the replacements, if I, and someone can correct me, I have, I have the, um, you know, the reissued vinyl, but to my knowledge, they, which is funny because Paul is a huge lyrics guy. I mean, that's why we love him. He has these incredible lyrics. Yeah. I don't think they include lyric sheets. Like that wasn't something that they really did. I don't know if it was because, he didn't want people to overanalyze them or if because to save money, they didn't have inserts. Cause like a lot of 
like I'm pretty sure like even the original twin tone stuff, like a lot of it doesn't have any type of insert other than like maybe an advertisement for like other twin tone stuff. Yeah. But I had to look up the lyrics online and the only reason I knew these lyrics is because they were actually printed in Trouble Boys. So I was like, okay, these are official. But yeah, I don't know anything about it other than that. Also, not only is the most political Paul ever got, but that's the most probably hardcore sounding part that they've ever Exactly. Had. Yeah, agreed. So kind of back to your point, though, about the um, this being the most political Paul ever got. I mean, it's just on record that Paul was like really resistant to the anti-Reaganism in the punk scene at the time. Um, I forget. It was probably in Trouble Boys, but sort of his quote was like, you know, so what? You hate Reagan. Who cares? Right. Like he kind of like felt that line of songwriting that was popular at the time was like just boring. Right. Yeah. Like you had like dead Kennedys. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is. The way I look at a lot of times with politics and, and punk music is it's best left to certain people that can do it. Like I remembered seeing an interview with Bill Stevenson, um, who's one of my absolute favorite songwriters and doesn't really dabble too much politically. And he's like, why am I going to write a political song? I would rather hear from Jello or, you know, in modern times, like Tim from Rise Against. Right. Like, or, you know, to us, like, Zach De La Roca. Like, right. you know what I mean? So it's like, I think the replacements kind of thought that too, is like, we don't know enough. We, you know, people don't need to hear from us. We don't, we don't need to write any songs about how Reagan sucks. I think Paul got, didn't he get in trouble or something in a European, like, when they were on tour for Tim, he, he like, made some comment about Reagan, like, how he's like, I think he's a cool guy. He, like, looks kind of cool up there, like, just to piss people <laughs> off. And then, like, yeah. it backfired. Well, yeah. when we do the Tim episode, we'll have to dig into that. But, yeah, like, that was their shtick. You know, they wanted to go against whatever was going on at the time, you know. Yeah. And that's why Stink is, like, in a vacuum because they didn't want to conform. You yeah. know, Paul had said, like, I want to do my own thing. Yeah, so next we have Dope Smoking Moron. This is another funny song. Um, and like, there's the debate too of like, is this an anti-weed song? Because right. on, on uh, the first album, uh, you know, I bought a headache. He's basically talking about buying some bad pot. Maybe this is like the, or at least that's what I thought. Again, I, I don't know. Um, but maybe this was like the part two of that. Like, you know, the pot was so bad. Now he hates it and he's calling anybody that smokes it a dope smoking right. moron. Yeah. It's like, um, this would be funny, I think, for like a straight edge band to play. I know, I know, yeah. Or is it, yeah, right. So, or is this song like, you know, a kind of deliberately self-aware critique or something like that? Right. Yeah. Or like, was it direct, I don't know, was it directed towards someone else in the band? Maybe right. someone else in the band like was was stoned all the time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, there's a story about Tommy, I think when they played their first show and Tommy was like 12 or 11 and he had like a giant pot leaf sticker on the back <laughs> of his face and they were playing a sober dance or something like that. So yeah, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. This song's like, it's like a punk version of I'm Straight by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. Yes. Um, so like not a straight edge band, right? But like, you know. 
but like the message. Exactly, exactly. Um, this and Goddamn Job are also oddly pushing back against anti-authority attitudes if you're interpreting the song lyrics in, um, in one way. Because in Goddamn right. Job, they're like, I need a goddamn job. And in this one, if you're taking it in a literal sense, they're like, you know, people who smoke weed are stupid. Right. And it's, that's, I think, these are the moments that really solidify how it's like, yeah, it's, it's them trying to be something that they're not, but they're still in there. Right. Yeah. So next we have uh, track seven is called Go. Mm-hmm. Um, this one's a real outlier on the album. It doesn't sound like anything else um, that is on Stink. It doesn't sound like anything on the first record either. Um, I, ha- I wanted to read a quote. So most people who know, you know, if you read any press, anytime Bob Odenkirk, uh, the actor from... You know, God, Jude, we've been fans since Mr. Show. Love him. Bob and David. We would quote that in the one-up van so much. Um, But so, I mean, I've been a Bob Odenkirk fan. I know you have for literally like over two decades. Yeah. So when I found out he was super into the replacements, I mean, I was like, oh, cool. How can I like... I know. (laughs) I didn't think I could love this guy any more than I already do. And he goes and does this. So, um, you know, any chance he gets, he'll talk about his love for the replacements which I think you and I talked about how in a weird way, like you can tell that better call Saul, especially has a lot of that Paul Westerberg style to it where he self sabotages. Yep. Yep. Um, Yeah. Especially like when you see like the origin story parts, like, you know, before he starts becoming a lawyer. Yeah. Like he has the chance to do something great and he just, doesn't do it he stops short and he does something that just changes the whole trajectory yeah and i mean that's why the show is so good and the character is amazing but it's also why the replacements i think that you know people have said if they succeeded like they were meant to succeed i don't know if we'd be talking about them with such reverence because you know maybe they would have just turned into like a corny college rock band i don't know Right. You know, but yeah, so the Bob Odenkirk. So Bob says um, of, of this song, Go, he says, Go is a great song from Stink that is full of alienation and sadness that I still find easy to access and probably always will. Uh, he said that in a Rolling Stone interview from 2017, they were talking to him about Better Call Saul and they literally asked him, you know, what music gets you the most? You know, what music do you feel most connected to? And he just gushed about replacements and he gushed about trouble boys. Um, and it was cool. And he actually was on a podcast recently. Um, my favorite album, I think it's called where he talked about sorry, ma. Um, and I would highly recommend Googling that and taking a listen. Yeah, man. That's awesome. I always think with the song, you hear like early hints of um, unsatisfied. It's like a moody, catchy, sort of sad song about alienation. Um, songs are a little bit different, but um, I also hear a lot of uh, like early Archers of Loaf in this song. So uh, I once heard Archers of Loaf described as, quote, brilliant songwriters who are adequate musicians playing the hell out of barely functioning equipment. Um, and that's just like what this song sounds like to me. Yeah, like it sounds like they're like it. I don't even. I can't even think of the words to describe it. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if this song in particular was actually an inspiration to the Archers of Loaf 
like you said, because I know, you know, I think some of the members were in the documentary and like, they're definitely fans. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a little of, what was the song American Nightmare covered? Oh. Me, me and you? Is yeah, it me? yeah. Yeah, it has that, a little bit, like, in a way. I haven't yeah. played that song in a while, which the Archer's version is great. The American Nightmare version is really good, too. Yeah, um, that's true. But, yeah, I can, I can definitely see that. Um, it's, it sticks out on the album. Um, definitely. But I'm glad it's on there. Well, kind of a segue into the next song, Gimme Noise, the last song on the EP. Because I, I always kind of felt like those two songs should be flipped in a lot of ways. Because Gimme Noise is kind of more of a straight up hardcore song. And Go is this kind of like moody, sad uh, anthem sort of. I'd be curious to learn about the sequence of them. What are your thoughts yeah. on Gimme Noise? Yeah, like I wonder, I wonder that too. I can see that. You know, sort of like we talked about with, um, was, it, was, it, was it Husker Du? No, it might have been actually... Uh, pleased to meet me how they did um, Skyway and then yeah. they put um, can hardly wait last um, I can see it both ways like I could see it maybe ending with go but I kind of like like this one kind of brings you back up and makes you want to just flip over the record yeah um, and this song was written as a response to a local band called the suburbs um, who full disclosure I've never listened to um, and they changed their sound on their 1981 double LP, Credit in Heaven. Um, and that had a song called Music for Boys. And there's a lyric in Gimme Noise that says, I can't figure out music for boys. Don't give me that noise. And um, apparently the suburbs were kind of bummed about it. Um, but, you, I mean, Jude, you know, like with, with punk especially, you know, under those confines, when bands change their sound, it, it's it's a tough thing to get people to get on board. I know it can be um, controversial. It really can. And a lot of times people get on board years later. Like you'll right. have some, you'll have people be like, man, I hated this when it came out. Yeah. I wanted to, you know, throw the record out. And now I think it's great. Like I have a few years under my belt. I realized what they were going for. Um, you know, I think in color me obsessed, uh, Johnny Resnick from the Goo Goo Dolls talks about getting don't tell a soul. And they put it in and they chucked it out the window. Which is crazy that <laughs> yeah, because all people said that. Because Don't Tell a Soul makes some of their later stuff sound like Cannibal Corpse. I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> to yeah. bring it to Metal Blade. You know, right, right. Yeah, we're a contemporary band. But I remember like when um, Caven put out Antenna, um, people, you know, I think there was like a tour with the Foo Fighters on that one and stuff like that. And it was definitely a more sort of like, you know, pop, centric kind of song structures in it they got dropped i know yeah. and people were like oh like what are the replacements doing like um but then more recently or what are caven doing to me Kaven, or, excuse me yeah. what are yeah um but then more recently i feel like people are like man they were doing like such a it was like such a cool thing they did on that album i think that's their best record honestly it's awesome um and i know other people think so too but at the time when you know this isn't we'll save this for our uh episode of Caven podcast. <laughs> but um, at the time, I was so into Until Your Heart Stops came out. I was a teenager. And when he started clean singing on everything, I was bummed. Yeah. And now yeah, didn't like, not to yeah, and I don't want to get too in the weeds with Caven, but didn't they do a thing where like when they were touring on um, Jupiter was it? Um, where people would like start requesting like, you know, the more like metal earlier songs and they would play like they would be like, all right, 
here, we're going to play an old one for you. And they would play like Led Zeppelin. That sounds about right. That's such a, it's kind of a replacement move. Like a, yeah, definitely. Or I think maybe they would, if I'm, maybe it was them, they would play like, they do like the intro, like of a song. And then they'd be like, go into something else. But yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about that on our uh, podcast that dissects the cave-in catalog. Yeah. Coming soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so what are your thoughts on, uh, on this track? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, I always felt like Gimme Noise and Go should be in the reverse order. But I can see, I see how it makes sense that they would end. It was going to be kind of a traditional hardcore record. They would end with a more traditional hardcore song. I always thought that it was ironic that the replacements... Um, I th- always thought that it was ironic that given what the replacement sounded like by 89 with Don't Tell a Soul. Yeah, like it's, it's like funny to me to think that there was a point where Paul was upset about a band changing their sound. Right, exactly. And then they changed their sound. I love it, right. but it's like the pot calling the kettle black. Yeah, exactly. It's also just like kind of a classic Matt's like fuck the scene that I'm a part of of myself it's like the groucho marxism like i'd never be part of a club that would have me as a member or something like that but oh i love that quote yeah 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 that's that's groucho marx yeah all right so that's so yeah, that's we, that's it this is a only an eight song record so jude what's your favorite song on here my favorite song is go it's just like it's got it's got like everything i want in a replacement song i love the like you know the anthemic intro um I love the, like, you know, there's some really cool stuff happening on the, the more hardcore songs, but the one that really stands out for me every time is Go. How about oh. you, Greg? I'm surprised. And the reason I'm surprised is because the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> Go is, uh, it may be the outlier, but it's, it's clearly the highlight. And, and honestly, I think Bob Odenkirk summed it up. It just, it really nails that feeling of alienation and stuff. Um, and it's it's great like yeah. the verses are cool but just that plaintive chorus it's simple yeah. but it's just it's awesome and it has it sticks out like we've you know i probably said 15 times on here already but it <laughs> sticks out but it's it sticks out in a good way and it sticks like, out i feel like for a reason like you feel like yeah yeah like they were doing like yeah like you can see they like maybe were like doing a bunch of like writing and then, like, they finally got to, like, this song, and they were like, oh, shit. Like, that's where we're trying to go. Like, yeah. Like, that- it's, it sticks out in the way that everything falls apart sticks out on that record. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. So, be on the lookout soon for a playlist. And I've said this a couple times. But, um, yeah, be on the lookout. And uh, that, that's going to wrap us up for this week. So, thanks, everyone, again for listening. Uh, we're looking forward to you joining us on our future explorations of this essential Midwestern punk rock. So for episode seven, we're taking a slight detour because like we said, we are going to kind of delve into the whole universe of Husker Du and the replacements. Um, and we're going to be discussing the final Sugar album, uh, File Under Easy Listening, which was released in 1994. An amazing uh, My album. first, yeah, my, my introduction to Sugar. So that should Mine be fun. Too. So. Um, thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. All right. See you later, folks. Yes. Yeah, so you Take said care. you're going up to the like running store today.